Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. You're all so far away today. Yes, so we are continuing our summer series uh, in the Psalms. As much as some of us would like you know, to move on to fall, we're still in summer, folks. Summer Psalm series proves it, not until I think the 21st. So we're still going to be uh, you know, in with the, the summer uh, vibes and the summer psalms here. So we're in Psalm 124 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can uh, begin to turn there, Psalm chapter 124. And if you like titles, title is Our Help. Our Help. You know, life is hard. I don't need to stand here and support such an obvious premise. We all know that life can be difficult. In fact, life seems rather impossible at times, doesn't it? It feels like Sometimes we are uh, challenged to lift 500,000 tons. Better yet, to lift 500,000 tons with no limbs. It feels as if the tasks before us and the situations we face are utterly impossible. And so we are often left pretty hopeless. And hopelessness, you see, is a symptom that derives from devastating certainty of an incoming failure or doom. Hopelessness is basically, basically comes from perceiving that there is no chance for a possible good outcome. Imagine with me for a moment a skydiver who jumps out of a plane and then realizes that they don't have a parachute. Right? It's in those moments that such a, such a person would feel that hopelessness that I speak of, where they, are, where they realize that they await inevitable and certain doom. And every human is at times plagued with this terrifying sense of certain doom. And the world feels this way. And when, when they feel this way, they try to cope by motivating themselves. They'll seek perhaps a motivational speaker, maybe a psychologist or a book or anything that will help them feel like failure is not inevitable. But these earthly solutions by themselves are just putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. They are temporary and they are in a sense by themselves delusional in light of the dreadful circumstances that we in fact do face. How foolish are we to think that we can stop a massive impending doom through mere motivation, that if we somehow try hard enough, we can deadlift 500,000 tons with our arms while having no limbs, right? That is a logical contradiction. It is not possible. If a nuclear warhead was about to go off in one millisecond, and it's right next to you, no matter what kind of motivation you had, no matter how inspired you are, you, my friend, apart from God, should feel hopeless, and anything else would be delusional. If you forgot your parachute, you should not anticipate living, but anticipate dying, and that is a hard truth. And this is the voice which the psalmist speaks from, Today, we're going to see this in a part of the psalm. He's writing with this desperate, hopeless sense in mind. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if you look for truth, you may, find, uh, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and end in despair. 
You see, unlike these earthly solutions, the Bible only speaks truth. It will never offer false motivation, false hope, but rather true descriptions. And what we see in our Psalms today is that hopelessness would in fact be warranted if God did not intervene. If God was not a help, we ought to be hopeless. The Bible, it's a book of truth. It doesn't put band-aids on bullet wounds. The Bible performs a surgery of the soul. It utterly transforms the mind and deals with the problem of certain doom, not by earthly means, not through false motivation or delusion, but rather through a God who intervenes and saves. God, our help. And so this psalm, we see it's going to be contrasting real impending despair with God's power and intervention over circumstances. Psalm 124 takes a would-be situation of certain death and reminds the reader that though failure is before us, though our situation even appears hopeless, our help is in God. That is a truth for worth banking on this morning. That is a comfort that is real, that is substantial. God, you see, God can fly. He doesn't need a parachute, right? He transcends time, yet can interact with time, and so can stop the nuclear bomb before it goes off. He is the only thing, the only being that can properly help us in the way that we need. So why don't we all stand and rise for the reading of the scripture this morning, if you are able Psalm chapter 124, we're going to read the whole thing, it's eight verses, and when we get to seven and eight, uh, it'll be highlighted in red, we can just read that together. Psalm chapter 124, Holy Scripture says this, had it not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say, had it not been for the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive, when their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have flooded over us. The stream would have swept over the soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our souls. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our souls have escaped like a bird from the trapper's snare. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. Oh, and Lord, we pray that you would teach us the deep truths from this text. Lord, that you uh, would give us comprehension and understanding and allow us to apply this truth to our life. God, do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 120 through 134 are often called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're called that because during Jewish festivals, everyone would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. And Jerusalem was at an elevation of over 2,500 feet. And it wasn't necessarily an easy climb for an ancient Jew. These songs of ascent were sung for increasing resolve during the journey to build anticipation for worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And Psalm 124 would be one of these songs of ascent. This psalm was to be a national reminder for any practicing Jew 
to know that God was their help. That is the content of the psalm. That is what would spark worship in the ancient Jewish heart. That is what sparked worship in in David's heart as he wrote about this, and it should spark worship in our hearts here this morning as well. That God is our help. Friends, this is a simple truth, I know, but simple truths are perhaps the most foundational truths. These simple truths often hold up this, this whole structure of our complex theology. Truth upon which the whole structure usually stands or falls. So today, yes, it is a seemingly simple truth, but it is an important truth. It is a vital truth for the Christian to understand that we can so often easily forget. The truth of Psalm 124 is that God is our help. And yes, it is simple, but it is incredibly deep. And we're going to ponder some very deep things this morning. So why don't we begin? Let's start by looking at this beginning portion here. It says, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, then all of Israel joins in, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. Verses 1 to 2a serve to identify the central figure, which if removed would spark everything else that the psalmist was about to write about up until verse 5. Everything after that phrase, had it not been for the Lord who was on our side, is a description of events that would have certainly happened. This is not mere speculation in this language. This is inspired, would have happened language. Remember, I think there was a movie in the 80s based off of the board game Clue. And it says, oh, this is how it could have happened. Maybe Miss Scarlet or whoever kind of committed the crime, but it didn't happen that way. It happened maybe this way. And then at the end, they would say, this is how, how it really happened. But it's, it's similar to that, that kind of thinking. You're imagining, well, this is how it could have happened. But moreover, this language is even stronger. This is what would have happened. You remove God, this identified independent variable, from the situation, and you have a certain outcome. And in science, an object that is removed or added is called an independent variable. And it's added and removed on purpose in order to record differences from when that object is present to when it is absent. And here, the opening verses identify that independent variable in the psalmist's divinely inspired thought experiment in which he is about to embark. It is God and his help towards the Israelites. David writes Psalm 124 in worship to the Lord that is invoked by thinking about these things, by thinking about what would life be like if God was removed from the picture. And thus we have a clear outline for the rest of the psalm. We see two sections here. We see how it would have happened without God, if God is removed. And then we see how it did happen with God, along with our appropriate response of worship in light of that fact. That is the roadmap for this morning. So let's look at this. 
this first point here, how it would have happened without God. Again, this psalm is largely a contemplation of failure that was certain without the intervention of God. So why, again, is David doing this? David knows that before we properly understand the truth that God is our help, before we are invoked to worship the Lord for the help he has provided, we need to have a proper mindset of, of our own condition, our own need, and the own, our own certainty of death that awaits us without God in the picture. We need to know how bad our situation is in order to appreciate the help appropriately. And we understand this on a larger scale. The whole gospel is, is similar, right? You must understand the bad news before you properly understand and appreciate the good news, right? And so David is doing a similar tactic here. Uh, Oz Guinness puts it this way. He says, contrast, excuse me, yes, contrast is the mother of all clarity, uh, and there he's, he's speaking of contrasting religions to get uh, to, to see what is true. But nonetheless, I think the principle of contrast, bringing clarity, uh, still applies. So understanding how dire the situation is, understanding man's limits, actually sets up a clearer picture for the God who helps. For example, imagine uh, uh, this situation. Let's say you have little old lady who can't open a jar, right? And you could easily get that jar and help her, right? No, no problem. But let's say you have another situation alongside that where maybe you have someone who is caught in a trap milliseconds away from being shot. You see, God is not just our help in the small sense, helping us open a jar. David wants to point out that God is our help in the large sense, the heavyweight sense of that word, help. He is not our little helper, all right? He is the major help in which we are completely dependent upon. I believe uh, Genesis also refers to woman with this same word, as she is our helper, right? It's not a little person who helps us with some tasks around the house. It is someone who, who is necessary for the situation, Right? And God, likewise, is necessary for the situation at hand. And clearly, this contrast of this, this second situation I explained of being, being saved in a millisecond before being shot, clearly, this helps us understand the greatness of God. That is the point. That is what, why David is embarking on this experiment. The hopelessness sets the stage for the hero. So here's the point. Our condition without God is certain failure. I might sound like a broken record. That's okay. Uh, I think it is uh, absolutely necessary to understand this point. Again, simple truths are deep truths. Do not lose focus because I am repeating myself. This is very important to understand that our condition without God is certain failure. Again, the bomb milliseconds from exploding would have exploded. So now we move into verses three to five to get across the severity and the certainty of the situation of the impending doom. We see intense language that David uses to recall the situation. We see first in verse 2b, uh, the, the first point that actually sheds light on the whole situation, what was the situation? It was actually enemies that 
had risen up against God's people. People rose up against us. An enemy is coming and devouring everything in their path. People are opposing Israel. Who exactly the enemy is is debated among scholars today. I believe there's good reason to think this is a reference to the Exodus. Uh, and David is kind of recalling, uh, recalling this event. But even if it's not, the general points and descriptions we are about to go over remain the same, and the application remains uh, the same for us. Uh, no matter the case, the language of the psalm is dripping with the certainty of death. And to bring home the fact of, of uh, you know, how vile the situation is, how certain the situation is, David uh, introduces metaphors starting in verse 3. An approach to language that screams out and demands attention. The Lord inspired David to use intense descriptions of this trial to draw our attention to the severity of what it was that they had faced. To get, a po- to get across, again, the point that our condition without God is certain failure. So let's, as we analyze this language, it's going to support that point, that without God, certain failure. So let's look at some of this language he uses. The first phrase found in verse 3, Then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. This captures ferocious actions, the viciousness of the individuals when they attack Israelites. They are chewing up Israel. They are metaphorically digesting them, engulfing them. This idea, right, of being swallowed uh, gets across the, the concept of a greater thing sort of capturing a smaller thing, being inside of it, being completely overtaking in an all-encompassing way. Perhaps, again, a reference to the fierce Egyptian army and all of their their heavy equipment and chariots as they surround and slowly begin to cover Israel by the Red Sea. Here is, again, the idea. Uh, Pastor Gilson used the same photo when he preached on, uh, on a psalm earlier, and it's the same word that was actually used. They are swallowed up. There is a great and quick Complete overtaking. And they are, if those people who fell to the bottom, they're surrounded on all sides. They can no longer look up and see the light. They are completely engulfed in something else. Waiting. Awaiting a doom. Here's another example of uh, when we see swallowed in Exodus 7, 12. When Aaron throws the staffs down, we see that his Aaron's staff swallows Pharaoh's staffs, uh, or the magicians that Pharaoh had set in place uh, as they turn into snakes. It is this idea of being completely overtaken. That is the idea that is captured here. And this is a graphic depiction of what Israel faced. Verse 7, if you look, uh, I don't have it on the screen, but it alludes additionally to being torn by teeth. Violent, certainly not a calm end like a lethal injection. This language is not self-motivational. David is putting no band-aid on, the, on the, the bullet wound here. This is saying they were to be completely overtaken, engulfed, and surrounded by their enemy. 
they were going to be swallowed. This is a description dripping with intense horror of a would-be fate. And look at this, not only are they swallowed, they're swallowed alive, it says in the text. That they are swallowed uh, alive, meaning they're still kind of in taking the data. They know what's going on. They're horrified by what they're seeing. They are experiencing a, a very, very uh, intense death is what they would have been experiencing. Approaching on all sides. They were to be alive, maybe in the stomach of some creature. Again, maybe referring to captivity in Egypt, maybe, maybe not. Either way, this, when you pause and think about it, being swallowed alive, being completely surrounded and engulfed by something is a pretty horrifying experience. This idea of just kind of enclosure, nowhere to go, nowhere to, you know, there's nowhere to go, right? People who are claustrophobic might resonate with this metaphor. Being in a small space, maybe again, the enclosure of the fierce Egyptian army surrounding the Hebrews by the Red Sea. This idea captures both concepts of digestion and enclosure, and that is the first metaphor that David went with. Now we see this other small idea here in verse 3. It says, Then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. So not only are you kind of enclosed, it's not like that person who maybe gets a little too close to you, but they're nice, they're not a threat, you know. This is someone who is angry towards you. The manner in which they were pursuing it wasn't slow. It wasn't like, oh, let's be deceptive and sneaky about it. It wasn't even very strategic. It is a full-on, in anger, charge towards the people of God. And when we see this expression, right, kindled, it means burned with anger towards Israel, towards God's people. And every one of us has probably ourselves experienced the feeling of being angry, right? The feeling of being angry, your heart rate starts to go up. Your blood pressure goes up. You start to get warm, right? Maybe that's the idea of fire being kindled here, right? You start to even sweat as your temperature rises. Your respiration changes, right? We know that the blood is going away from your gut and it's going to all different muscles, getting you ready for some kind of physical activity. You're, you start to breathe in a certain way. Your nostrils flare right? I think of the angry bull, you know, the, the picture of just like the concept of a bull that's ready to charge, like, right? That is the idea here. There is a charging, angry enemy that is going towards Israel. And mind you, we know what it's like to be angry, but imagine for a moment not being the angry party, but being the party that is Enclosed, nowhere to run, no escape, and you see these fierce, angry enemies charging towards you who are well equipped, perhaps again the Egyptians with their chariots and their equipment, and they are going to destroy you. They are out for blood. That is the situation David is describing here. An enemy headed straight for God's people with no escape. And now we see another description introduced, which supports, again, remember the idea we're supporting, that the, in the destruction of Israel, or God's people here, was inevitable without God. Here is the next kind of metaphor that he uses. It's from waters and flood. 
verses 4 and 5, both capture this idea. Then the souls, excuse me, then the waters would have flooded over us. The streams would have swept over our souls. Then the raging waters would have swept over our souls. So instead now of being swallowed by some creature who's very angry at you, there's a description of being uh, flooded from water. Again, the idea of being overtaken by something here still remains. Uh, again, this could perhaps be a, still be a description of the enemy, but it seems likely to me, due to the ordering of the Exodus uh, narrative, that this could be referring to the Red Sea during the escape from Egypt. Right? In the narrative, we have a fierce pursuing enemy and then water. And what do we have in the psalm? The same thing, a fierce pursuing enemy and then a change to the idea of water. So the parallels certainly fit nicely here. Again, I wouldn't be completely dogmatic about that, but nonetheless, even if this is referring to something else or intentionally ambiguous from the psalmist, we can still uh, carry over some of these ideas that ancient Jews might have thought of when reading this psalm, which would have most certainly been this idea of the Exodus. So we have a description of intense waters around them as maybe they crossed the Red Sea. Either way, we see a frightening picture of water here. There is perhaps nothing more frightening than the pursuit of a man who is angry at you with no escape, except man when they face natural disaster. That type of natural disaster is strong enough to kill both parties, right? That is something that is massive and beyond, beyond what we could handle. Bodies of water, you see, needless to say, have a certain force associated with them. Anyone who's been at sea can tell you that. Uh, many people recently experienced the type of damage that water can do through Hurricane Ida, right? Record rainfall in New York. Here's a picture of one of the subways over there. It's collapsing streets. This is the type of damage that water can do. It can be an extremely powerful force of destruction. And man, I believe, is perhaps in no weaker state than when some sort of natural disaster hits. And in this case, the force of nature that man is against is described as water. And it is moving water. Imagine for, with me for a moment, full strength of a wave. Maybe the waves of the sea, God is maybe holding them up, and if that wave were to crash onto them, the kind of damage that that could do, that is the image that is captured here. It's not just stagnant water. It's described in verse um, 4 as a stream, right? To capture this idea that it is flowing water. It's not stagnant. It's not like going into a little kiddie pool, you know, kind of dunking under the water. Ah, oh, it's technically engulfed by the water. Not that kind of description here. This is moving, flowing water, waves that are going to crash upon you. The water is, perform is the subject performing the verb. It is man versus water, and water is the active force. It is moving. It is powerful. And it's about to hit. Again, surrounded by waters so fierce you cannot stop them. They are swept over you as if you were no obstacle at all. In verse 5, we see 
that the, the word used is raging waters. Or the King James uses the word crowd. It captures this idea of, of uh, sort of like an insolence and a presumption that the idea that the water is so grand itself that it does not even consider you an obstacle. You are going down. It is a proud water, a presumptuous water. And perhaps if God didn't hold the waters in place for Israel as they crossed the Red Sea, they would have suffered a similar fate to that of the Egyptians who attempted to cross. Having the water crash upon them, tossed in the waves until death. These proud waters, the flowing waters, would have easily swept over the Hebrew people if God had withdrawn his hands that were holding up the waters. Or even if this is a description of some other event, this remains a powerful metaphor of certain destruction that God had prevented. And so we see all of this intense language, again, support what we were talking about, that there is approaching certain doom. They were indeed expecting destruction. And perhaps with a mere human lens, it was very justified. The idea of verse 2b through 5 is to capture the justification of despair and certainty of death when God is removed from the picture. This was 100% the sure fate that awaited Israel without God. That is the point. That is what David has been contemplating. Indeed, we can at times feel this same despair. This is what life can be like without God for us. Something where it's just an awful impending doom that awaits us. This psalm is of great relevance to the modern mind. Things, friends, they're indeed quite overbearing quite unbearable for any human to face. And your motivation, your, your, you know, your little motivational speeches, your books, none of that is going to save you from destruction. None of that can get you out of the impending doom that awaits. The Hebrew people without God would have faced an intense, brutal end. But friends, God did not allow that to happen. That is how it would have happened if you had removed God. That is not the fate of God's people. Here is how it really went down. How it did happen with God, our independent variable, back in the picture. Well, our conditions without God are certain failure. Our conditions with God is certain salvation might I add, rooted in the promises that he has made in his own word. And so this realization causes praise to come to God in several ways that we're about to look at. And here is where it gets good. Uh, verse 6, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The net is torn and we have slipped away. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Here is the shift. Our independent variable, God, is now back in the situation and we now see a much different picture. We see escape. We see the Hebrew people in fact lived. 
David is now done contemplating these very dark and depressing and overwhelming things and is now back in reality and is overwhelmed to praise God who did not allow those things to happen. They thought they had certain death, but with God it was not certain. Rather, salvation was certain when God is in the picture. And their true fate looked a lot different than what it would have without him. All of those awful things in verses 2b to 5, they didn't actually occur. They were not swallowed. Though it seems so certain, in fact. In fact, I believe that the scriptural language indicates that it was certain without God. Nonetheless, God was involved. He did intervene, and it did not happen. The scripture states, right, that they would have been swallowed. The waters would have engulfed them. The streams would have swept over them. Raging waters would have swept over their souls. So we see David acknowledging God and salvation. And he continues being metaphorical here uh, as he uh, now shifts into reality. Uh, We see he still is using metaphor to get the point point home here. Uh, But this time not speaking in would-bes, but speaking of actualities, speaking of things that have happened in light of God's work. The psalmist in verse 7 speaks of the trapper's snare, right? An animal caught in a snare. Uh, generally still alive, but incapable of properly moving. Uh, perhaps its leg is caught in the snare and it's trapped, simply awaiting a seemingly inevitable fate, conscious and aware. David says, though, that they have escaped. Israel was free. Oh, that feeling of freedom when, when there is a way of escape that has been made, that feeling of overwhelming victory, The fate that awaited them was gone. That is how it really went down. But remember, the victory clearly was not from their own doing. They were trapped. Verses 1 through 5 makes that very clear. But because of the Lord and his faithfulness to Israel, they are now free. Thus, verse 6, David opens this new portion of the psalm, rightly attributing praise to the the work of God, to to the Lord. Blessed be who? Not Israel, not Moses, not Aaron, not David. Blessed be the Lord. He, again, is praised, and he is the being who is responsible for Israel's freedom from this vile enemy. All of this intense language of approaching doom was, again, to highlight God, who is faithful to his people. Remember, this was all a thought experiment to compare Right? One in which the pitiful condition of man is realized in order to praise God for his miraculous intervention and faithfulness. The dark thoughts, the difficult circumstances served to get ready for God to be praised. And so verse 6 opens the way it does, as it rightly should. That is the point. All of this was to result in worship. All of this contemplation. All of this recognition of of how they escaped. It was all rooted in the praise and worship of God. Brothers and sisters, it is therefore biblical to contemplate our own would-be states, our own would-be conditions in light of what the Lord has done. That our hearts may sing along side by side with David, Blessed be the Lord. 
Where would you be without God? Looking around, seeing the decaying culture, the murder, the oppression, the endless evils of the world, why is it that we ourselves are not overtaken by these things? Friends, without God, we would be. If we were doing this life alone in our own strength, we would be overtaken. We would be devoured. And so we need to, with David, praise God for his intervention in our lives. We ought to contemplate what life would be like if God did not intervene and react with us. Where would we be? Where would Grace Gospel Church be? Perhaps some of us dead succumbed to depression. Perhaps some of us overtaken by drugs and alcohol. What's your story? How has God intervened in your life? Where would you be without him? And now, where are you with him? And here is the most important intervention of God, the most important help he could give us that we should think about. Where would our eternal destiny be without God? Every single one of us here without God, not could be, not merely could be, but would be sentenced and judged to an eternity in hell. Yes, indeed, these testimonies, friends, are worth sharing to a greater end of worship of the Lord. It is biblical to contrast our life without God versus our life with God to magnify and get a clearer picture of God. This is done boldly by David, and it's done all throughout by many others in the scriptures. Therefore, it should be the same with us. Maybe even this, this week, find someone. Find someone this week. Share your testimony. Share where you would have been without Christ and without his intervention in your life. And remember that it is the Lord who has done the work. You are doing this not to be a great storyteller and be prideful in your storytelling, but to acknowledge and highlight the beauty of the Lord's salvation in your life. That he had done the work. He had done the work for Israel. The Lord had other plans for, them, for, for Israel. He could have you know, given them to be torn. But instead he followed through. And he was faithful to his promises. He had chosen Israel to be his people. He had made a promise to this group of people. And so God, faithful in his own promises, intervenes. That is also a very important implication to all of this. That God made a promise to these people. God chose these people as his own. And he was therefore on their side because of his own word, not because anything they had done. These people were about to spend 40 years in the wilderness complaining. Certainly God didn't want to save them just for that. He saved them because he's faithful to his own word, you see. No fierce enemy no world system, no snare of the trapper, no wave of the water. His promises were, were sure. Yeah, death might have seemed sure, but his promises were sure. They were more certain. Friends, this would lead me to encourage us all to pick up our Bibles, to look for these promises. That way, in times of despair, when things look bad, when we remove God from, from the picture, right, and we have our own circumstances, just overwhelming, we don't need to be like that, friend. We have promises to bank on. Open the word of God. There is nothing more sure than the word. That is why God had saved 
this, his people is rooted in his word, his promise. Now moving to verse 8, we see something interesting here as well. David, through contemplation of past faithfulness, writes verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 8 marks another small shift here. Right prior to verse 8, the whole psalm is speaking sort of of past contemplations. Oh, God was our help. Right? If this is David contemplating Egypt, um, you know, that's certainly past, very, very much in the past. He's kind of saying, oh, God was faithful and he has done a lot of things. Now, verse 8, upon contemplating all of those things, we see that this past contemplation of God's faithfulness has actually led David to write of the present help that the Lord is. The current trust that we can place in him. That is a truth to realize that God's faithfulness, God's interactions and interventions, they're not merely past tense. Saints who feel discouraged, saints who feel that God has only moved in the past, saints who feel the pressures of this world, saints who need help now, realize that God is your help now. And the promises of his word are, are your source. Your source. And praise him. Friends, do you realize God always sees his promises through his past and the, the ones in the present and the future? He'll see it all through. And in light of remembering his faithfulness to the past, we ought to be trusting and praising him for the present help he also is. He is our help, not was our help. David motivates us to further trust in the Lord with this small, tense change. And he motivates us to, to trust presently in God. And then he moves to this final contemplation in which we will close, and which also closes out the psalm. He says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We serve a God who is not merely willing to help. Anyone could be willing to help. Anyone can make a promise. But it takes, you know, something else to see that thing through. God is able to make good on what he says. He can make good on his promises. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has infinite resource, infinite power at his disposal to bring about his will and his promises to his people. That is the type of help we have, friends. This is not a description of a foolish person bound by foolish physical limitations. This is a description of the one who has created all things. God is greater. The Egyptians, sure, they probably had a lot of resources or whatever. Maybe if this is not them, their enemy, they ha probably had a lot of resources. It was a powerful enemy indeed, a powerhouse of their day. But God has infinitely more resources. The very chariots the Egyptians rode in belong to the Lord. Nero, too. Remember Nero? He thought he had a lot of power. The Roman Empire, the greatest force of the time. Ultimately, too, a pawn in the hand of the Lord. No one, no power, nothing on heaven or on earth or power of hell can uproot the Lord's plans and promises to us. 
He is the creator of all things, and he is helping us. This description of God in many ways is the culmination of the psalm. This is the part of the psalm where, where God is distinctly described as a unique thing from all creation. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And no one or nothing else, no matter what, can have that claim. Therefore, yes, he is willing, he makes promises, but he sees them through, friend. He is powerful. He can, because of his power, because of his ability, stop the bomb before going off. Again, fly down from heaven to get the parachute or without a parachute. And he himself has lifted the 500,000 tons of sins with his own arms. Even death cannot overcome his promises. Death itself, because of the promise of salvation we have in Christ Jesus, has completely lost its sting. Do you realize that? That is the new covenant promises we have to bank on. This is why we need to be in the scripture. This is exciting. This is certain. His promise of salvation, most of all, friends, is sure. Bank on it. In other words, even if you're falling and you don't have your parachute and splat, you hit the ground and you do die, even in what seems to be impossible circumstances, there is hope in a new covenant promise that our God will still be our salvation. He has not forsaken you. He doesn't promise an easy life. That is not a promise we see in Scripture. But he promises eternal salvation to those who would believe. And friends, he will come through on that promise and nothing will stop that promise from coming about because he is able. Friends, realize just as God made promises to the Israelites and was faithful and able, he is too able to save any who would call upon his name for salvation. And he has all power and all authority to make good on that promise. Friends, see that with God in the picture, our condition is certain salvation. It is a certain salvation, a certain help. So we've looked at two things, really. We've looked at how things would have been without God, certain failure, certain death, and what Things were with God, certain salvation. This, of course, sparks appropriate praise for the faithful and powerful past and current help that is our God. If you hear my voice today, please contemplate these things and know that if you reject Christ, if you reject the help and the salvation he is offering you, contemplate what would your life be without God? If you accept Christ, contemplate again what your life would be with God. You know, just because what we're talking about this morning comes from an old book, it doesn't mean that it's not true. This old book is God's word, God's message to humanity, that we need a savior. We need a hero. We need a promise keeper who in his power can bring about his promise. Someone who is all-powerful. Otherwise, without God, friends, we're just doomed. We're just doomed without this, this being. Will you admit today that you are not the hero of the story? 
that things are indeed out of your hands, that no amount of motivation, no amount of positive thinking, no amount of wishful thinking, no amount of sheer will is going to save you. Our condition by ourselves is certain death. We're caught in the snare of sin. The waves of death and hell are about to crash on us, and we will be swallowed in judgment if not for Christ and the certain salvation and intervention that he has offered us. Salvation belongs not to you, but to the Lord. And we cannot save ourselves. The question this morning, and uh, Brother Mike Browner can uh, come up at this point, make his way up. The question this morning is, is the judgment of hell from your sin a will be, or is it, as this, this situation was for Israel, a would have been. I pray God intervenes in your soul and makes this certain doom that every human faces a would have been. I beckon you to accept this help. He is our salvation and today is the day of salvation. Accept the Lord's help and bank on his promises and his strength. Had it not been for the Lord who is on our side. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. God, I pray that we would um, be just invoked to praise you further as we contemplate our life without you and the wonderful, wonderful life you have graced us with. Lord, thank you. Let us uh, apply these things in our hearts and in our speech. In Christ's name, amen.